From Alaska Teen Media Institute, I'm Zinn Rogers. This is Film Club. A podcast series where our youth film critics and cultural connoisseurs spill the theoretical tea on a new movie. So, these are spoiler-filled conversations, folks. If you haven't seen the movie they're talking about, be prepared to learn far more about them than the trailers will tell you. For this episode, we're back in the MCU, talking about the latest movie, Thor, Love and Thunder. Bringing back writer-director Taika Waititi, the movie sees Chris Hemsworth's Thor reuniting with his ex-girlfriend, played by Natalie Portman, and other characters from the previous films, as they face off against Gore, the God Butcher, portrayed by Christian Bale. At Me producers Madison Knudsen, Ormond Lois, and Logan Smith get together on Zoom to discuss how it compares to other Thor movies, the brand of comedy that Waititi brings to it, and whether or not this is the character that deserved four standalone features. So welcome to the Thor Love and Thunder Roundtable. I am the host, Madison Knudsen, and I am a general MCU lover, and I like Thor, and I love Thor Ragnarok. And so to begin, could everyone introduce yourselves and your familiarity with the Thor movies or the Marvel Cinematic Universe or MCU? I am Ormond Lois, and... Up until a little while ago, I wasn't actually that familiar with the Marvel Cinematic Universe until I was in a King Tech class where we would spend our breaks watching every movie in the universe. At that time, it was up to Infinity War. So I am caught up to that point. And of course, I've also watched some movies at or after Endgame. And this movie is no exception. It's pretty good. And I have optimism, very much so, for any future MCU films and shows. All right. That sounds great. I agree with your thoughts. And then also, a lot of movies you had to watch there. That's a lot to, like, get in, like, halfway through to the MCU. I started watching with Avengers, so I can only imagine coming in, like, in Infinity War. It's a lot to catch up on. So I'm glad you liked it as much as you did. It was about one movie a day for on or around an entire quarter and or semester. Oh, yeah, there you go. (laughs) That's a lot. So, Logan, what's your familiarity with Thor or the MCU? My name is Logan Smith. I've loved, you know, just superhero stuff in general for a while. Like, I think dating all the way back to when I was like maybe second grade. But I only started getting into reading actual comics recently because I usually read those like little like encyclopedias that would like tell you about these fictional characters and what happened in the comics. That being said, I did really get into the Marvel Cinematic Universe early on and I have surprisingly mixed feelings about Love and Thunder, which we'll get into. Yeah, I would have to say the same with Thor. And then speaking of our thoughts on the movie. Do you guys want to like share a little bit more specifically about how you felt about the movie? Maybe like specific scenes you liked, something you didn't like. And then as well, if you had any expectations coming into the movie. Well, as with most Marvel movies, old or new, I do like how it tackled real world issues that were very subtly inserted into the movie. Like how if a person changes their identity, We need to acknowledge and respect that. I really love that plot line. I thought it wasn't too, like, sappy 
but it was just, it was there and it was to the point and it was just accepted. And I think that Taika and every, the whole crew of this movie really understood how to add those uh, points of, you know, LGBTQ plus acceptance and of the culture. So I think they did a really good job on that. I would agree with you, Ormond. Logan, any thoughts on the movie? Any expectations that you had going into it? A handful, but since on your earlier conversation, I, I should have picked up on that. And it was a good plot line, but I think it should have been utilized more, not necessarily made sappier, but you know, I think the same thing about Gore the God Butcher, how he should have gotten more screen time to be like an awesome antagonist. But I think that a lot of things in the Marvel Cinematic Universe for me are a little like formulaic or glossed over, but that's not original of me to say. And similarly, since you asked me about my thoughts on this, I thought a lot of the characters, like even Jane Foster, who I think is a really cool Thor in the comics, She's kind of underutilized, like, at least that's just my take anyway. Oh, yeah, I agree with you. It Definitely the Axel plotline maybe could have been a little more fleshed out, but I think there's also, like, some usefulness. It was, like, normalized through this movie a little bit, but I definitely agree, like, I think with audiences today, you might need to, like, emphasize it a little more to you know some people don't pick up on it and I think that was maybe also one of their intentions that it's like so normal but yeah I think they did a great job but I definitely agree with you that the mighty Thor uh Dr. Jane Foster is definitely underutilized in the MCU yeah I think that when it comes to big budget movies that are blockbusters like the Marvel Cinematic Universe I think subtlety is kind of overrated, but that's just me. I think that when you paint in big, broad strokes, it's a lot more entertaining. And I think in the past like couple of years, irony and self-referentiality have kind of become the dominant for Marvel Universe, where it's just like every time something crazy happened, it's always delivered with an eye-rolling, winking cynicism. I just think it should be more sincere, but that's just me. I agree. Subtlety is an optional thing. I think with MCU films, they don't need to have subtlety to be cool, but they do it anyway to be more cool. Yes, I definitely agree. Yeah, a lot of Marvel movies are just like not subtle, but you know. And so talking about, I know, Logan, you said you didn't really recognize that Axel, that storyline was like had deeper messages. Um, something that I didn't notice on first watch was that Korg was like kind of the overall narrator of this film. I probably maybe just wasn't paying attention, but I think it was just like that he was there for small bursts. But what do you guys think of this element of the film? Do you think that like having Korg as narrator was the best choice for this film? I don't know. I mean, I think that it certainly adds a little bit of credibility to the humor, but uh, at the same time, you know, humor has been a part of the MCU for a while in a variety of different permutations. So I, I don't know. Like, I think that was a fun idea, but it's sort of like if they started suddenly putting nonlinear storylines in a superhero movie where it's kind of like it can be obligatory or stapled on, you know, even if it does provide an interesting look at the whole situation I think it's just like a gimmick at a certain point but that's just me no I definitely I can see your point it definitely 
felt a little out of place having Korg narrate it, but it almost made it kind of feel like he was just telling kind of Thor's last story. But as we know, and we will talk about later, this isn't probably his last film or last entrance in the MCU. It literally says Thor will return in the final text. Yep. Post-credit scene, stay for it, folks. Mm-hmm. Ormond, what did you think about Korg as the narrator? I think some could argue it was unnecessary, but I, I think it was a pretty good addition because of how much contrast it had between the narrating, the action scenes, and especially the way it was used as a transition to other scenes. It actually reminds me of one of my favorite shows that have narrators every now and then, and that's Doctor Who. Doctor Who's done that well. So I guess, although I would expect narration like that to be more in a TV show than in a movie, I think I liked it. I think I liked it, and necessary or not, I think it was done well. I definitely agree with your opinion. And yeah, I think it's a nice like departure and a juxtaposition. I like that you brought up the juxtaposition because I didn't really notice that. So thank you for bringing that up. And then now to talk about one of the most prominent aspects of this movie or like the production of this movie, Taika Waititi returned to this franchise, not only as the director, but also this time as a writer, along with uh, Jennifer Caton Robinson. And then... Much of the ideas in this movie are about love and family, which Taika explores in many other of his movies. Do you guys think that this theme of love blends well with like the characters' arcs, uh, most notably Thor, King Valkyries, Gore, and uh, Dr. Jane Foster? In the title, it's Thor, Love and Thunder. And it asks that question pretty much throughout the film, albeit in different ways that can go over viewers' heads. And that question is, how much do you love someone? Yeah, I definitely agree. What do you think, Logan? I think that, you know, themes are hard to come by in the Marvel Universe in general and movie that has so much oversight for broad appeal. But I am always glad when they do sneak themes like that in there. So that is one of the things I did enjoy about the movie. Yeah, I definitely like that they kind of focused on love and especially the family aspect they focused on because much of this movie is about like children almost because like the main plot gore has the children and then also behind the scenes, many of like the actors' children, including Chris Hemsworth's daughter, I believe, played the Gore's daughter. Uh, she did, yeah. Yes. And then many other, like, I know Taika Waititi's daughters had cameos. And so a lot of people's children, free labor, were in there. But I think, yeah, family was like ingrained in this. And I think it was like the next step for Thor to like have a kid and wrap up his love arc. So I think, yeah, it was really nice. And then many critics of this movie have pointed out that Thor Love and Thunder's comedy is very similar to its predecessor, Ragnarok. So do you agree with this like similarity with the previous movie? Right, I mean, I kind of do, but I also think it's a little watered down by comparison. For me, at least, it wasn't as funny. And even Ragnarok took a few minutes to actually settle into its comedy. Like, I've talked to my dad about this, where we watch Ragnarok together. 
And he was talking about how when in the first few minutes, he's like, eh, I don't know if I'm going to like this comedy. But then he started laughing like 20 minutes in. So I think the comedy is similar, but different. And the goats screaming will never not be funny to me. I saw it with a friend and I kind of laughed through osmosis because it, it similarly made me laugh. Just like that. Ah! It just like comes out of nowhere. It's startling. That's why it's like startles you to laugh. So yeah, I yeah. definitely agree. A bit more of like mainstream humor, which isn't a bad thing, but for some audiences, it can be a bit like off-putting. Also, it did feel like there was a bit more comedy than the previous one. So it was like more frequent jokes. Right. Yeah. And then Ormond, how did you feel about the similarity? Did you see a similarity in comedy with the previous movie or no? Well, the one thing I remember most about Thor Ragnarok was two things. For one, it was released on the classmate's birthday. And another thing, uh, I remember that Ragnarok had the Hulk in it. And that's definitely a similarity to Love and Thunder because there's a degree of consistency. But that was also the movie that introduced it to me, the idea that although a title of a movie for Marvel will have one superhero, there's never going to be just one character from one universe. There's always going to be more than one. And that's pretty fascinating. So that's what, uh, that's what I had to say about that. Yeah, I definitely yeah see that. And then it's nice to have Hulk in the previous movie add like a sense of comedy from his sort of like arc as a superhero. And then it's also nice to have the Guardians of the Galaxy come into this movie and add their brand of humor in there as well. And have like a nice difference. Yeah. And then, you know, the consistency of comedy throughout, not just the Thor movies, but also pretty much all the MCU films over time. Fun memory here. Right before we saw Endgame at that King Tech class, everybody in my class was pointing at each other and going, that's America's ass. That's America's ass. That's America's ass. And I just thought, yeah, that's consistency there because it's it's comedy that, as you said, is mainstream. It re relates to people. It really, it really gets them hooked. Right. Uh, yeah, I definitely think the MCU is really good at creating like uh, bits and like jokes that are that resonate a lot with people and that stick in people's heads. And then to talk about one of the biggest parts of this movie, Dr. Jane Foster, played by Natalie Portman, uh, returns in this movie and she assumes the position of the mighty Thor. So what did you think about the return of this character after an absence of almost nine years in the MCU? I think the last time she had an appearance other than her appearance in What If, the Disney Plus streaming show, it was in Thor The Dark World. I have a lot of interesting thoughts on this as a kind of fan of the comics. Because as far as the stuff they got right in the comics, like, yeah, it's about, to my vague memory, it is about Jane Foster becoming worthy and like being mighty Thor after discovering she has cancer. And that that is like a plot point that's repeated in the movie. and. I thought that was cool. And I also thought, spoiler alert, but you already knew this is spoiler-filled conversations if you watch Film Club. Uh, I did like how she was rewarded with Valhalla and we got to see a nice Heimdall cameo. 
Yeah. Uh, all of that, all of that is interesting, but you know, I also mentioned earlier, I felt she was underutilized compared to how she was in the comics. Like even her like journey as Mighty Thor, I'm not saying we needed to show her entire journey from like cancer to being worthy, but it would have been nice if we had an extra scene, same with Gore the God Butcher, that would have like added to the emotional weight we feel. And I think that's going to be difficult to do in a franchise that definitely relies on familiarity, but it, it, it can happen. And I think that I wish she was utilized more. And I also was really sad she died, though. So they might be doing something, right? Yeah, I definitely agree. Natalie Portman is so great. And she, yeah, she was underutilized. But there was a lot of aspects and, like, characters in this movie. So, but the runtime also of this movie was surprisingly low i remember it's like yeah, only it just over two hours right? yeah which is interesting but yeah i definitely i liked it what did you think ormond about uh the mighty thor or dr jane foster we mentioned consistency before and that's a good point for this one because looks like in the dark world and in above and thunder jane have a habit of being in an uncomfortable situation when she's ill or hurt emotionally or something but it's like she goes away comes back goes away comes back goes away comes back so i wasn't actually that prepared to see such a huge amount of resilience in a character that when i saw the first few minutes of her in love and thunder i thought i wonder how important she's gonna be and then i saw well when she became the mighty thor and then the cancer and then she went back and i was okay, this character is going to be very important. Yeah, the trailers definitely didn't give us too much like hints to what her role was going to be like in this movie. I, from like the scene they show of when she first shows up in the movie, which is the first like fight with the shadow creatures in like new Asgard. But in the trailer, it looks like it's like the end fight. So yeah, you don't really get that like inference to how important she is but she's very important and then logan i also liked the post-credit scene of her and valhalla that was very great and i didn't expect that at the end because i know dr strange's post-credit scene wasn't the best in my opinion but that's a whole nother story right uh, also um speaking of post-credit scenes before we move on I know we get consistently faithful adaptations of people in their comic-accurate costume. I personally, this is just me as a fan of a comic. I really love this mid-credit scene when uh, Zeus is revealed to be alive and his son Hercules is there in his comic-accurate comic costume from Marvel. Like, it, it looks like exactly the same. If you saw a picture, you'd understand. Oh, yeah, they were. I definitely think the MCU is doing a lot more, like, comic accurate suits especially with the spider-man no way home at the end i know they do the the comic accurate um so that's definitely cool it's a nice easter egg for comic fans it's really interesting too because marvel movies movies in that universe they don't always do this like with the comedy consistency but sometimes they challenge you to try to figure out if this good character has gone bad or if the bad character has gone good they kind of tricks you into thinking something that didn't actually happen like we're talking about spider-man no way home that hair comes back to a scene from 
the first Tobey Maguire Spider-Man, where the Green Goblin has a, I would call it a more passive interaction with Spider-Man, and where the Green Goblin tries to cut him a deal, and he says, are you in or are you out? Which is not something we expect to see from what was very clearly by then an established villain. It's like, what's this villain doing having just a regular conversation with Spider-Man? I felt the same way when the opposite happened at the beginning of Love and Thunder when Jane Foster was ripping up this guy's book about her stuff. It was like, have you, be, have you, have you wanted to become so full of yourself, Mr. Miss Foster? What have you done? But of course, that was a trick. She was always a great person, but the movie made me think that the fame was getting to her head and she was getting all overconfident. But we found out later that, that that wasn't true at all. That was a pretty clever trick right there. Yeah, definitely. And then on the topic of villains, and there's a pretty big villain in this movie, some have cited that Gore the God Butcher, who's played by Christian Bale in the movie, is one of the best Marvel villains to date. So what did you guys think of Bill's performance? And do you guys think that he lives up to the hype that people have been like giving him online? When you give someone that much hype, it's almost impossible to meet it. But that's the uniquely me problem. And I mentioned earlier that they could have like added a few extra scenes that like showed him actually like killing the gods with a necrosword beyond like just the beginning where like he had necrosword killed his god and then it's a whole thing. But I do think in the comics, much like everything, I think it's a case of the book being better. I think that yeah, Gore is a pretty intimidating villain in the comics. And I need to do more research later because I do. After I saw Love and Thunder, I'm like, I need to go back and read Jason Aaron Thor, Jason Aaron being the writer of those specific stories that introduced the God Butcher. And he also helped make Jane Foster into Mighty Thor, which was cool, that writer. Every time I watch a Marvel movie, I'm always like, you know, I should go back and read the comics this is based on. Uh, So basically, I'll give you more information about whether or not Gore actually lived up to the hype after I've read all that. Yeah. I think it speaks levels to a Marvel movie when it like makes you want to consume more like Marvel content, whether it be like movies or the comic books. So I think that's a very big compliment to the movie in a, in a way. In a way, yeah. Yeah. And then Ormond, what did you think about Gore the God Butcher? Well, I'll be honest with you. I thought for a minute that Zeus would be the secondary antagonist especially when they were introducing him and the looking back that felt a lot like i was watching finding nemo they were going shark they but yeah um never heard that comparison before and that's great (laughs) yeah well whether very few or very much i think it's a fair argument that you get so caught up in the action with marvel films that sometimes we forget that some villains, few and far between, I think is the right phrase, have motives, especially Gore. Gore isn't just killing gods and children for the sake of doing it. We think that's what's happening, but then we remember what happened in the first few scenes. We know what fueled Gore and what became of the, uh, what became the character, right? And I don't know if that alone makes Gore the best villain in the Marvel series, but definitely a contender. 
because he's got that motive that very very few Marvel villains seem to have. Very few villains altogether in any movie seem to have. Right. Yeah. Like, even though I love Guardians of the Galaxy, I do admit that the first one suffers from one of the weakest Marvel villains. Mm-hmm. Uh, like Ronan the Accuser, you probably can't remember him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also love that the character's name is Ronan. I dare you to spend any time in Ireland and find a more common name than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or just find someone in Ireland called Ormond. That would be interesting. <laughs> there you go. Or better yet, go to a different country and find a rowan tree. Yeah, I definitely agree with all your guys' thoughts on it. I had a unique, I guess, approach to gore when I came in because Christian Bale is very much a meme online with his performance in American Psycho, as well as the meme that was created from the trailers of this movie. So I definitely came in looking at the character a little differently, but it's a purely personal problem I had. So I kind of found myself laughing at Gore, not because of his story, but because of my brain not thinking. But yeah, Gore was really good. And I definitely think he needed a little more time to develop but I think that they did something that many other movies didn't do and developed their villains. But yeah, and I also think it was good commentary on, you know, religious themes and kind of like gods. And, you know, it can be touchy to comment on following like gods and like whether, you know, your gods have failed you, but I think that they did it in a way that didn't ruffle any feathers and let people think and like make their own conclusions. So we all know how difficult that is to do too. Mm -hmm. So that's another point for the movie. Yes. I'm not going to say many gods is better than one God. I'm just going to say every God I think portrayed in films has had some sort of shark bait etch-esque introduction. There's something there. Yes. This is the round table now. We're going to compare Finding Nemo to Thor Love and Thunder. And that's going to be the entirety of the round table, just two yes. of the films yeah. playing side by side. And then Finding Nemo. I don't actually know how long. But join us next time. We'll find Marlon's Kevin Bacon number. Yes. But I definitely agree with you, Ormond. There are a lot of like shark bait scenes, kind of like with the God praising moments. And I definitely, yeah, I did enjoy the Russell Crowe one in Thor, this Thor movie. Yeah, he was great. It could just be my ignorance, but you know, when I saw Russell Crowe playing Zeus, I thought it was a fun performance, but I also could not get over the ridiculous Italian accent. It just seems kind of like weird for a Greek God. It was it was a bit out of nowhere. I was not expecting that. Yeah. Ormond, what did you think of Zeus? Well, yeah, I, I agree with Logan. We got ourselves a case of Piccolinos here. Oh, God. For context, Piccolinos is a local restaurant that has both Greek and Italian food. So there you go. Interesting. Yeah, I definitely agree. But it was a fun character, a silly character, much like the the humor in this movie so yeah 
Um, and then to do something a little lighter than like religious themes and stuff, which can be a little bit of downer. As of the time this roundtable is being recorded, Thor is now the only MCU superhero to get four spinoff movies about himself. Do you think that Thor's story merited four movies or did you think like it didn't? What do you guys think? I think this is a unique situation because if you compare Big Three and Marvel, like Thor's arc is the one that's most specifically about history being in cycles. And this kind of repeats throughout the movies. So I think that cyclical approach was present in Endgame and it's present in all the movies about him. Whereas other characters like Captain America or Iron Man are about like stagnation or progress respectively. And I think that Thor's story is especially unique because he depicts history as kind of being cyclical. And I think that kind of makes it more meriting in a way, but honestly, I don't have a more nuanced explanation than that. So it's one could make that interpretation, but I don't know for sure. Well, I mean, if all four of them only feature Thor-related characters, I would say that's a bit much, but that's not what Marvel's like. It's not anymore, and that's, that's not what they're usually like. It's like they have more than one character, more than one protagonist, more than one superhero. So, I mean, if we get in at least any of these four something on the same level as Thor Ragnarok, Captain America Civil War, Shang-Chi, Doctor Strange, that would be something. That would be something. I, I would support that. Right. And I was going to say this earlier. Uh... I forget what question it was, but I think that one of the reasons I liked Ragnarok was because it actually utilized the resources of its universe. Whereas I felt like in Love and Thunder, Jane Foster, and especially the Guardians of the Galaxy had little to do compared to Hulk or Doctor Strange in the previous movie. But that's all I'll say about that. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think that like bringing in those characters when they make sense definitely helps a movie feel a lot more in depth or a lot more like less one note like some Iron Man movies can seem or should I say Captain America movies can sometimes feel like even though they are good movies on their own I won't diss the Iron Man and Captain America series but yeah I definitely agree Thor did kind of merit the four movies it got um, especially considering it's Rocky first two movies, which are not like generally like praised by people, but they're not hated except for the second one. The second one's a bit rocky, but yeah, I definitely think they needed a few movies to set their their course. Yeah. Did you guys think that any other MCU superheroes merited their own movies, but like more than another Thor movie? Do you think that Maybe someone else deserved a movie instead of Thor? I would say Black Panther, but there is a Black Panther 2, so then I'll just say Black Panther 3. Mm-hmm. There we go. I'd agree with that, yeah. Yeah. Also, I don't know if it merits more than four necessarily, but I really want to see the conclusion of Guardians 3. So if that does lead to a fourth one, then props. Yeah, I believe the third one, third of the Guardians of the Galaxy is in production now. But yeah, I definitely agree with you. It's been put off for a long time. The last one was like 
2017, wasn't it? Yeah. It was a long yeah. time ago. Yeah. Especially considering the big weight that Guardians of the Galaxy had during Infinity and Endgame, which might be a reason to why they haven't made another one for a while. Right. Yeah. But I definitely agree with that. And then when we discuss this, we also have to discuss like the increasingly popular Disney Plus original series on MCU superheroes. Something that I thought is interesting is that like more shows are coming out rather than like standalone movies, especially Miss Marvel that's airing now and Hawkeye. My question is, do you guys think that standalones movies like, you know, Captain America, First Soldier or, or First Avenger, excuse me, or like Iron Man could be replaced by like Disney Plus original shows? I think it's totally possible. Yeah. But I mean, if you look at a character on Wikipedia, you'll learn that five different people have held the mantle uh, of one character or another. So it's possible, but I don't know for sure. I agree with Logan. It's possible, but just because you can doesn't mean you should. There's a clear, very overused word I'm about to say here, but there is a clear agenda. And that is theaters cannot die. We almost killed them in the pandemic, but the fact of the matter is standalone movies and Disney Plus originals are both great. But to think that Disney Plus originals could ever at any point replace standalone movies or revitalize them or remaster them or remake them, that won't be possible. Because I think if they were trying to shift completely or even more more than partially to Disney Plus content only, we'd know by now. That's the agenda. We all, the audience, I think we want to move to Disney Plus originals, no matter how much we like movie theaters, no matter how much we like going to see standalone movies. But Marvel, Disney, doesn't see it that way. So as far as I think Disney's concerned, standalone movies no matter how they may appear to dwindle in popularity, they will never die. I hope not. Like, I'm very much like a cinema purist, and I, I mean, not like, that That sounded so pretentious, but I really love the movie theater, so I hope standalone movies don't die myself, personally. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I totally agree. Yeah, I personally, like, I don't think they're, they're dying, but I definitely think they're choosing which superheroes get the standalone movies and which get the Disney Plus uh, shows. So, yeah. And I think that some characters are also suited for those shows. Like, I think Loki is that's a pretty good uh, Disney Plus show. I might have some people who disagree, but I definitely liked it. But I think that the MCU is maybe also choosing lesser character or like characters who they think aren't gonna like perform as well in the box office for the Disney plus shows but you know I think both mediums work in the sense of the MCU you know and then to wrap up this long round table to talk more about the post-credit scene and like after that we discover that Thor will be returning to the MCU so this may come as pleasant surprise to some people certainly came as a surprise to the audience that I watched the movie with but what do you guys think were you guys surprised by this decision or did you expect Thor's return 
I personally expected it. <laughs> Just because uh, when, I don't know, unless you killed off Thor in that movie, uh, I don't think that you could go on without him. Didn't even really occur to me until you said that, that Marvel characters could be killed off. Like I just remembered, uh, I guess we can say it, Iron Man. Right. I've been, this whole time, I've been like, well, in the Disney Plus series, maybe he'll come back. And then I remember, oh, yeah. Yeah, you kind of, like, get in that mindset. It's like, oh, they're still alive because I can, like, go back and watch one of their movies. And they're still alive. And as well, like, Iron Man's impact is still seen in the MCU. So it still kind of feels like he's still there. And then it's also valuable to discuss, like, what if that show and the fact that it can bring back characters like Iron Man and like Captain America, not in the uh, Falcon uh, era, but like old characters like that. So definitely doesn't feel like you can kill him off. And then discussing like Thor returning, what do you guys think Thor's role should be in the MCU from now on? Should it be like him getting more movies or maybe cameos? What do you guys think? I think it would be cool to see him play like a heroic mentor to other heroes in subsequent movies. I always thought that'd be cool, but that's it's me and my fan fiction, like head spinning. We also have to remember that Thor, like canonically in the MCU now, he has a daughter, basically an adoptive daughter. Weird. She calls him Uncle Thor, but it's it's cool. But yeah, maybe that's a chance for him to be a mentor. Yeah. What I was thinking is that maybe Thor shouldn't have another movie because this movie kind of does feel like a nice wrap up for Thor's character, especially with the Korg narration kind of being like, this is Thor's story and this is maybe how it ends for now. I wasn't saying mentor in the context of his own movie. I was saying it in the context of maybe other characters' movies, if they do get one. Got it. Okay, cool. Okay. Yeah, I totally, I agree with you, Logan. I definitely think he has possibilities to like show up in other movies, especially like the Guardians of the Galaxy here. He does mesh well with other characters very well. Yeah, if you think about it, Guardians of the Galaxy has, well, a child. I guess. Baby Groot. Yeah. Groot's yeah. child. Groot. Yeah. Groot. Yeah. Babies in the title. There you go. <laughs> mm-hmm. There we go. Any final thoughts for you guys for the movie? Any final words? Yes. I'm preparing for this one. I think this is going to sound a bit cliched. But I think there is a moral in this movie that speaks to the audience to influence them to do acts of goodwill. What I mean by that, there are children stuck in a cage. How many times have you heard that or anything like that in the real world? And there's people, not going to say names, there are people who promise to rescue children like that in the real world, and they never do. They never stay true to that promise we look up to these people who say they're going to help children but they never help the children that's thor in that part of the movie and it takes someone like jane foster who we think is just an ordinary woman who dated thor we think that she is a bystander that she's just gonna go about her day but no 
Jane Foster helps Thor to save the children. And I think the moral from that is that we need to stop thinking, pretending, or counting on some higher authority to save, to help other people, especially children. We, the citizens of the world, perceived by these higher class authorities as peasants who can't do anything. We are the ones who must take action and save these children. Because if we don't, and I know this for a fact, nobody will. It is our responsibility. Huh. Thank you for bringing that up. That's a very interesting point. I didn't catch that, but definitely I I understand that now. Yeah. Anything to add, uh, Logan, to end it off? Yeah. No, nothing unusual. Just thanks for inviting me. I'm always down to talk about the Marvel movies. All right. Well, thank you guys for joining me and entertaining my sometimes rambly questions. So... Thank you. You've been listening to Film Club, a production of Alaska Teen Media Institute. Our show's theme music was composed by Kendrick Whiteman. The roundtable was edited by Nikki. Alaska Teen Media Institute is based in Anchorage, Alaska. We would like to acknowledge the Denina people whose land we work on. Many thanks to supporters of our podcast, including Alaska State Council on the Arts. The views expressed in this program do not necessarily represent the views of our sponsors. Thanks to our listeners who contribute to our programs and help us leverage additional funds and grants. If you'd like to support Youth Voices in Alaska and help keep our podcast going, you can support us through Patreon. It's a membership platform that makes it easy for you to support creative endeavors like Atme. Just go to patreon.com slash alaskateenmedia. You can also help out by subscribing to, rating, or writing a review of our podcast on Apple Podcasts. Every little bit helps us get our stories out there. And if you are a youth aged 13 to 24 who loves movies and is interested in being part of our film club, go to alaskateenmedia.org slash join to find out more. Or you can email us at news at alaskateenmedia.org. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for all sorts of updates. For Alaska Teen Media Institute, I'm Zen Rogers. Thanks for listening.